my hands are burning to the point where like I can no longer hold the hose line. So I got it tucked in my armpit and it's just flopping all over the place and I'm sort of flopping around with it. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are mine and those of the guest. Today in episode 32, we have the opportunity to sit down with my brother, Derek Block. He suffered some serious burns during what would otherwise appear to be a very routine fire. He tells us uh, his side of the story, what he learned, what took place, what he knows now that he didn't know that day. And we also talk about the recovery process, what it takes to get through those kind of injuries and get back on the fire track and run more calls. There are so many lessons learned that are so important for each and every one of us, whether you are on a fire truck or you are operating in your daily life doing other things. Understanding the risks and the decision-making that takes place is critical. So take a listen to what Derek went through and see if there's some lesson that you can extrapolate to your own life. Enjoy. So I'm sitting with Derek Block today. We're going to talk. I want to talk to you about all kinds of stuff, right? We've been we've been talking for the last 30 minutes <laughs> and I forgot to hit record. So now it's recording, and uh, we're going to have. Uh, I want to go back on some of that stuff we we're talking about, but we're talking about training and and promoting and and supporting our you know our companies in the streets and how we do that but you know obviously i uh, say obviously nobody else knows this but you and i at the <laughs> moment um, people who are listening to this who don't know derek uh derek uh, you were burned in a, in a pretty significant fire and he had some really significant burns and uh want to share with everybody you know i want you to share with everybody kind of your experience with that and you know what what happened in the fire but also kind of what happened in the aftermath you know what was the impact on you what was the impact on your family and and all that kind of stuff because there's such a an enigma uh, that people don't seem to really wrap their mind around right there's this risk out there when we're fighting fire well what's the consequence really look like you know for a guy who survives but before we do that (laughs) who is Derek Bach introduce yourself yeah, so Derek Block. <laughs> um, so been on the job for about 15 years, was academy class 052. Um, spent most of my backseat time on engine 15 on B-shift. Very busy house. Very busy house, yeah. So about 10 years there total, which was people are surprised to hear, about a decade there. Last two years were mainly out of class, roving around, but spent about 10 years there. Currently work on engine 37 on B shift. Recently got that spot about three or four months ago. So excited to work there. Thank you. <laughs> I'm married. Um, my wife's name is Heather. We've been married for. Hi, Heather. <laughs> uh, this, or, uh, yeah, this month will be 14 years. Nice. Congratulations. And, uh, thank you. We have three kiddos. Um, Brooklyn is eight. Madison is five. And we got a little boy named Tripp. He's closing it on two. So he's almost there. May he'll turn two. Nice. Uh, yeah. How long have you been a company officer now? Um, this summer will be two years. Yeah, so pretty fresh still. Nice. Yeah. So I was roving out of class for probably about a year and a half before that. Got promoted, and it's been a year and a half since. What was that like for you, becoming a, a company officer and transitioning from that backseat? Um, honestly, I didn't think I would ever do it. The, what, really? Why? Uh, I just love being a backseat fireman. And once I hit engine 15 and Luke Moran and I were working together as much as we were, uh, I just was one of those guys that just loved pulling hose lines and doing the work and fighting fire. And, you know, I liked the simple life. Uh, I liked 15. I thought I was going to stay there for a long time. Yeah. The, the call that we were, you know, here to talk about is what changed my mind. 
just just the experience that I went through, um, the knowledge that I had, the desire to keep people safe and do what I could to help people be effective. Um, it just drove a passion in me to like be a part of training, be a part of communicating fire dynamics and fire behavior. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking through like task level tactics and what it means to be like a solid thinking backseat fireman. Uh, I thought my ability to invest in people and to influence people in a positive way on the department would be increased if I was a captain and sort of had um, a crew to help bring up and train and invest in. If I had the ability to, to maybe be a part of battalion training from time to time. And I just thought um, implementing the things that I was learning and the effects that happened after the fire would best be served as a captain. And uh, honestly, like what I didn't want to happen to have happen is for anybody else to go through what I went through. Yeah. And so I thought like first on scene, you know, as a initial IC decision maker, I I thought I could help promote the safety of other people if I became a good fire captain. So I wanted people to be safe. I wanted to help them be effective. I thought my experience was a unique one in the fire service. And basically I didn't want to waste the experience. And I just thought like even, even the administrative side of things that I went through, um, planning training for like the aftermath stuff, thinking through like UL and this potentially coming out here to, to study the fire, being a part of DC, BC meetings and just seeing that side of things. Um, I just thought I, I had a unique opportunity to, to rise to a leadership for the good of the membership. And that's what sort of drove the passion behind why I, I decided to take the test. I love that because it's, what's interesting is that there's a certain amount of maturity that has to come with uh, taking on the next the next level, the next role, a role as a leader and recognizing that as an individual, you have an opportunity to have an impact in an organization. And sometimes that impact can, you can have an impact from the back seat. Um, however, sometimes your sphere might be a little bit muted, right? Yeah. The, the scope of your reach or whatever. But once you, you know, in our organization in particular, once you become a company officer, you have the ability to reach further, participate at a different level, mm-hmm. and and have um, more of an impact. And I think, um, I think all of us, you know, many of us, have a, a point in time when we start to understand that that we start to mature personally, and we start to have kind of a, an operational maturity, and we start to understand the dynamics of firefighting in a more uh, full and, and more comprehensive way. Mm-hmm. And once you begin to understand that, you go, whoa, okay, hold on. I, I'm i ready to be in the front seat because I think I understand the game better. Right. And now that I understand it, I, I, I see the hazards and I see how yeah. I can help my guys, uh-huh. um, you know, everybody around me be more successful and safer, yeah. et cetera. And a big part of, the big part of the transition for me is I thought I had a, like a certain level of, seriousness that I brought to the job now mm-hmm. not saying that's the only thing like I like to have fun I'm still trying to hoop and play pitch and shop and cook you know all the things that make the job awesome but like my sense of like sobriety or the weight of the position yeah. was driven to a level that I thought okay I feel I feel like I need to take that test because I'm going to take it really seriously yeah you know the the training that that comes just trying to keep my mind and my body and my equipment ready to go all the time. Um, not that I didn't have that before. I've never been a complacent guy. I've always had my routine. I've always been consistent, but like after going through that, what I went through and how hard it was on 
me, my crew, the department, my family. It's just like I thought I needed to step forward into that role just to make sure that, you know, people were, people were safe. Yeah. That's the biggest thing behind it. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm glad you did it. And yeah, me too. The, uh, so, well, you, you keep touching on it. So let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's talk about this event. So tell me about that. Uh, tell me about that fire that you had. Okay. And, and what happened that day? Yeah, it was November 12, 2014. An engine 15 was dispatched to a house fire on 47th Avenue in Bethany home. It was, I can't remember the exact time, but it was right before dinner at some point. Um, and so we responded. Our crew was intact apart from Jackson Maldonado had the day off and Albert Abril was our captain that day. So you had a roving captain. We had a roving captain, yeah. But who spent his whole career on engine 24 and who we'd had at 15 a, a lot of times. Yeah prior yeah so for those who don't know our neck of the woods those stations are in the same neighborhood same community or same part of town rather so yeah lots of the same structure types etc yeah types. and we'd worked a ton of fires together yeah um speaking of hoop too we us and engine and ladder 24 and rescue 15 would play basketball together all the time so we had a good working relationship we knew albert well we loved him we loved having him around he's a good fire captain smart guy yeah had done great in the backseat on engine 24 just Complete trust in them. Uh, so we responded. Um, ended up being first in to 47th Avenue um, and and uh, Bethany home. Well, let me take you back a step. Okay. When you, when you guys start your response, when you're looking out the windshield, what are you guys seeing? Um, I mean, it's working. We can tell. So right when we t- take that left onto 43rd Avenue and uh, we're heading down Camelback, um, westbound, we can see a column of smoke. Yeah. It's nothing like... It's not like, whoa, pump the brakes. This is something crazy. It's a good column of smoke. Yeah. We know it's working. So we're heading that way, just knowing that we're dealing with the working fire, starting to make a plan about laying in. And we had a plan about who's, you know, whoever's plug side takes a plug, whoever's fire side takes the nozzle. Did you already have any any clue about the structure when you heard the address? I didn't. Um, well, yes. The PTI said uh, house is on fire. The neighbor called. So the neighbor just to the north called and said, can see smoke and fire. And then the PTI did say vacant house next door on fire. Okay. So that's one thing that I I know I knew, but I don't know that I thought through what that means for my actions and my risk management (laughs) at the time. Like I just, you know, it didn't change a lot besides like, um, we might not be dealing with the amount of overhaul <laughs> the salvage stuff that we normally yeah, do. Yeah, it's empty. So <laughs> yeah, it's empty. So yeah. we can just go put this thing out. And, you know, there are some things that triggered, but for the most part, like, I'm thinking about potentially taking a plug, pulling a hand line, doing, doing a, a search and getting to the seat of the fire and putting the fire out. And right. Doing my job as usual. Um, it's interesting, though. The reason I'm asking you about the... Uh, what you saw when you were headed there? Did you know what? What did you know about the structure? Because as a company officer, and then there's like kind of this revisionist history, right? Like there's there's the looking back as what did I think as a firefighter, and what do I think now? Yeah. So many years later, right. um, how do I look at structures now, and what information am I gathering now? Yeah. So it's just, I guess, my thought was: is did you have uh, any pre-planning on that building? Because I'm sure you'd driven by that house before and in that area, but had, was that something that was uh, in your mind? And it sounds like it wasn't really. It wasn't really. The funny thing for me is talking to like Kurt Edder mm-hmm. <laughs> because he spent all those years on Engine 15 on A-Shift. Yeah. And he knew the house. He knew the address. He had yeah. been there before on other calls for um, squatters with fires to the exterior 
brush fires in the back, brush fires in front. Like he is, he was familiar and he was the responding chief to this whole thing too. Yeah. So he was familiar with it. I wasn't, this, this wasn't technically our first do engine 150 and 151. Mm-hmm. That's their first do now after the restructure. So they had all of 47th Avenue and Bethany home was their first do now. Not to say that I wasn't right on the, right on the edge. So <laughs> I wasn't familiar with the, with the address apart from the PTI information. Yeah. And it is funny, like that would be the PTI would be something that, and maybe Albert did. I just don't remember. That would be something that I would communicate to the backseat, like looking back just to make sure that they know, like there is a potential for savable lives, but because I, the person that started it was a person, you know, like yeah. the, there was squatters there. They were living in there. It was more furnished than people think. People think vacant house. They think empty. The house was anything but empty. Um, I don't know if people recognize how much fuel was in that house. Right. <clears throat> and and the fact that people were living there and the neighbors knew it. Mm. So, so although, it did have squatters. It did have squatters. But it was, to be clear, it was boarded up. Yeah. Except there were, for there were there steel entrances, rolled shutters on the windows when we pulled up. It was tightly sealed. It was boarded up. The front door was already open. But um, definitely, like a good size up would cause me to drop my level of risk to risking a little for savable property yeah. now. Yeah. I think then I think I was on the same page without probably being able to articulate it quite as clearly as I can now. But I knew going in like this, you know, my actions matched like a lower level of risk until things changed. And I right. thought there were my fellow firefighters in there to protect. Like that's what drove my actions and that's so, what ended up causing. Well, me. so, so, so we you, need to, we need so, to cover that part. Yeah. <laughs> so back up a little bit. So when, yeah. so you guys are rolling up on scene and now, you know, tell me what you're looking at. So we saw a, a, a good column of smoke, black turbulent smoke column from the back of the house and pretty lazy laminate smoke, believe it or not coming from the front door. So I thought I was dealing with like, an exterior fire, like maybe on the patio that was extending to the house and starting to make its way through the house. It was definitely in the attic. So they, they had that bird block with just those little pinhole deals through the attic. So we could see pressurized smoke coming from the gable end Yeah, and good pressure. So the attic was going and the back of the house was going and the backyard was going. So like, so what prevented you guys from kind of going right to the backyard? Uh, what we've been trained to do and taught to do. (laughs) And, and the way, because it was a vacant home, there was nothing but oleanders on one side and trash on the other. Like right. the carport was like blocked off by trash, right? Blocked off by, there was no access to the back apart from spending a lot of time getting there. Right. So my plan, the nozzle was on my side. I, I pulled the hose line. I'm trying to get, just pulled it in such a way that I was trying to get a good size up. I pulled it to get three sides of the, to the, of the fire pulled it to the front door and my plan was to just try to you know maryvale house stay in the middle you know don't go to any of the hallways or anything but stay right in the middle and shoot right through the front room to the kitchen uh and then towards the back arcadia door putting fire out to get to the back of the house and because i knew the seat of the fire was back there that was definitely the most right. pressure so you know well, my thinking so to, on the size up and so to describe this kind of house it's like a it's a single story i would call it like a small ranch style yep. where the kitchen and living room are on one side and you have a small corridor with bedrooms going down the other side yep exactly so uh you know my size up as a backseat guy was i wanted to take a snapshot of, of the layout of the house to know how to navigate 
when I get inside when it's dark and no visibility. And I always want to find the fastest smoke. <laughs> so it was pretty simple. Like I want to lay out of the house to know how I'm going to get around and how to do a search and how to, you know, get my nozzle where it needs to be. And I want to see where it's the most pressurized smoke because that's where the seat of the fire is. So we can do a search as we make our way to the fire, put the fire out. So that was my plan. Um, so that was a size up. I mean, we, we didn't lay in. So I had Luke there with me. And once we got to the front door, things were starting to progress a little bit to where smoke was probably at our shoulders. Um, when you first went through the door. When we first went through the door. So not totally banked out of the ground. A lot of people have, you know, people see the videos of what, when people started pulling out cameras and think, you went into that? <laughs> but no, we didn't. I mean, knowing what I know now, we were in a really good position because it looks like, it looks like an inlet on the back side of the house. Um, it looks like uh, the fire dynamics where it was getting fed from that side of the house and we had a bi-directional flow path in the front door where... Um, there was an inlet where we were going in, and then it was an, an exhaust up top. So we were coming in on an inlet side where air was being drawn in, and uh, you know smoke was coming up over the top of our heads. So that's a good position for a firefighter to be in. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we were. That was our plan. That was our size up. We actually had a conversation at the front and just said like, "Hey, it's definitely pressurized in the attic, and it's getting to the point where we can be dealing with hot conditions when we go on the inside." So we were cautious. We even we even had a conversation at the front door like, hey, let's be careful on this one because we noticed, you know, how tightly sealed it was. Hmm. We noticed the block yeah, construction. Any kind, of, any kind of egress would have been. Yeah. And it's going to hold heat. Super. Yeah. Impossible. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, based on how pressurized the smoke was to the back of the house and how it looked in the attic, we just knew that we might be dealing with you know, hot conditions when we started progressing our way to the seat of the fire. I didn't think I was going to encounter heat right away, but I knew I was going to encounter heat as I made my way through the house. So, um, part of, part of what drove like the way things ended up unfolding on this fire was the way that we had to manage the hose line because of how I pulled the hose line through that vacant lot to the South. And then like the way, so the house is East facing the doors, so the house is east facing, the door is north facing. Right. So if you can picture that. Yeah. I pulled my hose line to the south through a vacant lot because it was going to be easier for me to, it was going to be easier for me to flake out. And so the way that I hopped this little half wall entered into the north facing door made and a then, hard turn and then had to make a hard turn to start going through the front room. We had three corners to manage. Um so, you know, anybody that's, you know, a backseat fireman knows that can be a little bit of a challenge. Peter, pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, Luke was used to being the plugman, which I hope he hears this. <laughs> it just happened to work out. He was, uh, he was again humping my hose. support. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, he was a, he's one of the best firemen I've ever been around. So, he just, he knew like, hey, this is going to be a place where I need to make sure that I help Derek be successful. I'm going to make sure that he gets the amount of hose that he needs to be effective on the fire. So he had it in his mind once he saw the way that the hose was laid out that he was just going to be stuck at that front door for a little bit. Yeah, at the corner. At the corner. And, you know, part of hose line management at the time was, you know, feed a bunch of hose in the house and that way you don't have to worry about it. Right. So hindsight, we probably fed a little bit too much hose into the house because it made for a tough follow out once we knew that we had to 
out of the house. And so, um, pulled the hose line to the interior. Uh, still, the conditions were about the same. Started making my way back. Started encountering heat enough to drive me to my knee. Um, so I dropped to my knee. Uh, Luke's behind me now. And I just think, like, if I'm going to progress any further, I'm going to have to change conditions a little bit. So I just opened up a straight stream, um, just sort of penciling the ceiling like I'd been taught in the flashover chamber at the academy. And that I've done a lot of times on engine 15 up to this point. So, so my, my penciling, you mean just bursts, right? Bursts. Short bursts of water. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. And the way that I'd always operate on that was, like, Obviously, like if it's too hot to proceed, you're going to have to drive temperatures down in some way and your, your water's the way to do that. All right. But you don't want to upset the thermal layer by dropping like the hot gases at the top and dropping that and causing that to swirl on top of us. So I was trying to be careful with how much water I flowed in that front room. Um, but part of the way that I would gauge that is like I would open up my nozzle and then I would wait to see if I got any water return. Right. And so once I got a little bit of water return, knowing like, hey, it's not absorbing all of my water up at the top of this house, I know that like I've driven condition or temperatures down enough to start moving forward. At this point, I'm trying to match my like internal or my interior size up with what I saw on the outside. I'm like, look, listening, feeling, seeing what I got. I'm hearing crackles on one side. I'm starting to feel the heat on my right side. How far in were you guys at this point? Not far. Five feet, maybe six. So... He, right now he's right he's right on my heels he gets up to pull ceiling and it's hot when he's standing up um we know based on conditions that there's is fire this a conversation can you guys are you guys communicating this while you're <laughs> interior at this point are you guys um, talking yeah yeah we're still able to hear each other at this point okay um wasn't a lot of communication we i mean we'd been working together for seven or eight years at that point so like i could feel him standing up and i can hear him pulling ceiling so now now i'm backing up he actually tapped me on the shoulder at one point and i backed up and i started flowing water into we were only pulling maybe three foot by three foot it was too hot to stay up there for that long but but once we were on our knees we were comfortable it's funny we we had just fought a fire a week ago on 33rd avenue and camelback that the conditions were way worse than (laughs) than what we went into on this one so like we went through a streak, and then we had one on like 45th Avenue and, and um, Pearson that was worse than this one too. So like we were coming off of like two really hot fires two weeks in a row, and this one like felt like, oh, this is better than the ones that we've had in the past. So like even though we're on our knees, even though we're flowing water, like we're not concerned. Like it's right. just part of – we just need to get back to the seat of the fire, and we just need to change conditions. It's going to take a little bit of work to get there. take a little bit of work to get there. So. Um, flow some water up into the attic, um, start to see some conversion up there. And now like, were you it, seeing, were you seeing flame when you were squirting in the attic? Could you see the flame? I think, yeah, we could see a little bit of glow, but like not much, especially because we were forced to not be able to drop a lot of ceiling yeah. because the conditions just had us on our knees. So at this point I'm thinking like the conditions are going to continue to get worse. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to eventually get water on the seat of the fire to make this problem go away. The only way that we're going to not continue to get hotter and hotter is to put water on the fire. So I took a second and tried to listen to where I was hearing the most popping, trying to feel on my body, like where's the most intense heat coming from. It was sort of coming from my right. So right now I'm in the center of the room. I start making my way that way. So once Luke starts to feel hose sliding through his hand, he just thinks, all right, I'm going to have to drop back to the those corners again and just feed him enough hose to keep moving and then uh, i probably got about three feet and then conditions changed quickly um 
a lot of people have it. I've had a lot of conversations with people in the last five years since it's happened, but a lot of people think like it was a progressive, like hotter and hotter and hotter. And I was just trying to cowboy up and just stand there and, and not lose the firefight and right. things like that. <clears throat> I take a long time to explain it, but this is a pretty brief time. That like I'm in 90 there. seconds. So right? like right now we're probably sitting at the 60 second mark and maybe even a little bit further than that. But what I experienced was like an intense and rapid change in conditions. I, I often explain it. It was like a like an OSB board that we used to slide in those you know props down at the academy, the the ceiling pool props. Like right. it was almost like somebody had one of those and just smacked me with it, and it was heat. It was like right now, it's you know four or five hundred degrees hotter than it was one second ago. So in that moment, it felt like a wall of heat hit me. My my ears, I felt my ears go. I knew that they went. I was like, whoa, my ears just bubbled up. The back of my neck went. I knew that that was definitely blistered in my fingertips. So I knew I was getting burned. <clears throat> I like sort of you know, stood up and was scooting on my, on my feet, but trying to stay low when that happened. So I immediately dropped all the way down to my knees and conditions were no different down there. So at that point, um, I opened up my line and turned behind me to just try to feel for Luke because I was just trying to communicate that we need to back out. It was untenable. Like I was being burned. I knew I was being burned. And uh, so when I turned around to have a conversation with Luke and to feel for him and to yell for him, I just didn't get anything back. Like I, I couldn't hear him. I couldn't, I couldn't feel him. He wasn't around. Um, but I knew he was on the hose line. Yeah. I knew he was inside. <laughs> Those are the two things I knew for sure. Right. Luke and I had fought so much fire together that like he's like he loves fire. So like there's no chance that he would be anywhere but right by my side at that moment. So like right. there was no there was no thought in my mind that he had dropped outside to communicate anything, to to feed hose. Like I just knew that he was experiencing the same conditions that I was experiencing. So yeah. now now I'm concerned for our safety. I know that I'm injured. I don't think I'm injured bad, but I just know that I, we need to get out and yeah. redeploy and make a different plan. And I needed to communicate with, with Albert because we hadn't made contact with Albert yet. Um, so once I, once I couldn't talk to him, my plan was to keep the nozzle in my hands and just back out as best I could on the hose line. I didn't shut the line down. I didn't crawl back out. I just thought um, I was going to try to just back up on the hose line and make my way back to the front door. At this point, like in my mind, I'm thinking flashover is imminent. Like the 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 temperature is so hot and the smoke conditions are so bad. Now I can't even hear myself talk. Um, conditions are so still, bad. It's still blacked out conditions. Right? It is totally. I can't see your hand in front of your face. I can tell the turbulent. It, the smoke was turbulent. I could, you know, when you can like hear how, like it's almost creates its own sound like it's loud yeah it was almost like i could hear how turbulent the smoke was just pushing by me and i just know like this thing's gonna flash over and kill us if if i don't prevent that with my host stream so at this point i started to open my line fully and kept it open now that's something we could probably come back and talk about because some people disagree with with that decision um i stand by that decision i still what think would be the do. disagreement that I just steam burned us by doing that. And they would they would equate the amount we got burned from that point forward with the steam production in that room. But you're already being burned. I t- yeah. It, like I I'm sure that I did have some steam burns, but I was burned by just high heat, by like 
convection heat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, anyways, and I'd be interested to see, like, if this thing, you know, gets ramped up and gets studied a little bit further, I'd be interested to see what they have to say about some of that stuff. But anyways, so I'm backing out, and the way that the hose line, based on the pattern that I had um, sort of done as I was make, trying to progress to the seat of the fire. Right. Like I, I knew sort of the angle that I took. So one, and, so, and let's be clear, you were what, like eight, seven, eight feet in, right? Right. So it's not far. Seven or eight feet inside the front door. Front door. Have not, have not made it past one room of the household. I'm in the living room. Right. Trying to back out, and uh, I'm sort of making hand motions to you, but it, nobody. I'm trying to explain it so that people can sort of understand. Once, once I was, once I sort of backed out as far as I could with my feet on the hose line. Well, I'm sort of on my hands and knees, so I'm sort of backing out. I'm sort of pressing myself back on Pushing my hands and knees. Yeah, yeah, feeling the hose line that's coming in through the front door. I'm holding the open nozzle in my hand, and I'm I'm still getting injured bad. And so I'm backing out, and I come to a point where I could tell that the hose line sort of banks off, and I know that the front door is right behind me. So I just sort of back off that hose line and back up, and I haven't contacted Luke yet. And now I know I'm somewhere in the three-foot vicinity of the front door, but now I'm in a corner that I'm like what the heck? Like, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember this corner. Like right. here, here I am in sort of an unknown position. I know I'm feet away from the front door. I can't see any light from the front door. The smoke conditions are ridiculous. And, you know, thinking through like the aftermath of it, what, what people saw from the exterior of the house, including Albert, who was still, you know, deploying companies and stuff on the way in and getting his gloves on and getting ready to make entrance. And some of the staged um, fire companies waiting to be deployed saw the same change of conditions that I, that I felt on the interior. So what happened was that laminate smoke that was coming out about, you know, now probably waist high, just banked down in an instant to the ground and just become and just became super turbulent. Right. And that front door became and a that front full door, exhaust. A full exhaust. Yeah. So now it went from a bidirectional flow path to a, a wind-fed full exhaust from some failure on the back side of the building right and we well we know that, that the wind was out of the west that day from the west to the east which is normal in arizona right south kind of a southeasterly wind is really common right. for us and then that back patio the glass failed yeah and that caused the, the the wind to push right in that big wide opening yeah. and push all that and add uh air in big right. push of air uh into those conditions into that fire yeah. and into the structure yeah, and I think it'll be important for us to circle back around and talk about some of those fire dynamics too. But like yeah. right now, everyone saw, including Bat- Battalion 151. Yeah. They saw what I felt and it yeah. was a rapid change of conditions in a second. Yeah. And so, you know, conditions banked down were forced out. So right now I'm what? in a corner that I wasn't positive exactly where I was. I know I'm in the front room. I'm no, I'm somewhere by the door, but now I'm no longer on the hose line that's coming through the front door. Now I'm just holding the nozzle and... I don't want to go any. I don't want to go back a single inch. <laughs> I want to either go out the front door or stay where I'm at. Because in order to crawl out on that hose line now, if I shut the nozzle down, was going to be to crawl all the way back through that. You know that front to fall, room to follow the line to out. follow the line yeah. totally out instead of just getting on a wall and heading outside. My primary concern at this point is like imminent flashover, and Luke is feeling what I'm feeling, and I haven't found him. And so I know that there's one way for us to stay as safe as we can, and that's an open hose line to prevent a flashover and to prevent him from being killed. So um, 
what I was thinking at that moment was like, yes, I'm getting hurt, but like I'm the only water source in this room. My best friend <laughs> on the fire department is in there right now. Yeah. <clears throat> it was an emotional moment where I'm thinking like, are we going to, is this going to happen? Like, All are right. we going to, and I know that I'm in this for the long haul. Yeah. And so I just make the decision like, Hey, I'm going to have to, I'm just going to have to stay until I find them, but I can't search for, like, I can't really go back and search for them. I need to keep this line open. And so I just started screaming for him. <laughs> I just started just screaming for him to yeah. see if I could get him to come to me. Um, I know that if I shut my line down and go out, that it's going to flash over and it's going to be the worst for him. So now it's a super intense emotional moment where, you know, I'm not, I'm not really certain about what the, what the future holds. I'm starting to yeah. consider like, am I going to die in a house fire? I can't believe that this might actually happen. And those thoughts actually went through my mind where, yeah, I was, cons- I was, I believe the worst. It was one of those situations where like I was calm yet like just like it was chaotic at the same time. It was a weird feeling. Like I, I wasn't super concerned about my safety, although it hurt really bad, but like Luke was still in there anyways. So my goal was to keep the hose line open to prevent a flashover until I was able to know that my the crew integrity was there. My crew was intact and that we could all get out together. So I'm in the corner now knowing what I know now about the fire behavior, what was going on. I was probably in one of the worst positions in the house that I could have been in. And that's, that probably explains why my burns are significantly worse than the other guys that were inside that room. So now Albert's in the room searching for me. Luke's searching for me. Both of those guys are concerned about my safety. They're feeling what I'm feeling. Everybody's on their hands and knees. It's, it's really, really hot. So now like, what I'm feeling is every move I make, that piece of skin is gone now. So I would I would face my right shoulder to, you know, where the fire was at and I would feel it go. So I'd immediately just have to turn in a different direction and that side of my body would go. And then I would get on my hands and knees and get as close to the ground as I could, all with my hose line open and my stomach would go. And like I would just I I knew what part of my body was burning every Jeez, second boy. I was staying in the house. My calves were gone. My hams, like the back of my legs were gone. I knew my wrists and hands were done. Um, at this point, like it's getting hard for me to hold the hose yeah. line in my hand. Yeah. I mean, our gear had what they call it, the TPP, right? Get thermal protective property or whatever. It can only absorb so much heat energy yeah. uh-huh. before it's, you might Saturated. as well be butt naked, right? Like, yeah. It doesn't uh-huh. do you any good. Yeah. And, um, and the position that I'm forced to be in to get low is just compressing that air barrier. So I'm well, compressing. gone, yeah. So I'm compressing all that heat you know and actually so now there's some conduction burning going on from yeah. my turnouts that have absorbed a bunch of heat now i'm pressing it into my yeah, skin direct like contact yeah, my, it's my not... burn patterns yeah that direct contact like you could tell based on where my burns are how i was moving in the fire and how i was positioned interesting and so um battalion 151 sees the conditions and they transition strategies so emergency traffic tones go off on the inside i don't hear any of this I know that I'm just trying to get the heck out of there. <laughs> yeah. Um, trying to locate the guys and get out of there. So Luke is at this point, he, he has no idea that I'm being hurt as bad as I am. So he's super hot. He know, he, he knows he's doesn't want to be in these conditions anymore. There's no reason for us to be in these conditions anymore. There's no property. There's no lives in there anymore. And so, um, he's just searching for me. So he has crawled in the front door. He was already on the inside. So he's crawling down the hose line reaching for me and he can hear my hose, my water 
pattern, hitting the, you know, hitting the ceiling and banking down. And he just thinks like, I'm doing all right. Just yeah, fighting fire still. <laughs> and he's wondering like, how in the world is he still in here just fighting fire? Because at so, this point he's getting burned as well. Yeah. So Luke, a lot of people don't know that Luke was burned a lot more severely than, than people know. Um, so Luke and Albert are searching for me. I'm Again, trying. he's in your shadow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor big Luke. Uh, we can get back to Luke and everything that he did in the aftermath of this. That's an impressive human being he as is, far as just like indeed. high character, good guy. It's a special person. Um, well, let's just say the fact that he's, <laughs> he's in there burning up, searching for you. Yeah. You know, that's a, a serious commitment to your partner. Yeah. You know? Oh Yeah. And that's one of the special things that have come from it, this whole thing is just like the depth of conviction that we are here for one another, love one another, are committed to each other's safety. We know each other's families. We're best friends. Like we are, you know, we spend a lot of time together. Our families spend a lot of time together. But I mean, we would say when we're sworn on this job that that we would, you know, we see this in the Tarver incident too. Like we would, we would sacrifice our lives for each other and that's, and that's what we were that's what that day was about um among a lot of other learning opportunities i think the character behind the willingness to stay there and sacrifice yourself for the good of another human being is important to sort of yeah. touch on yeah i hate saying that because i don't want to like draw attention to me like hey i should i should get some sort of recognition for this which that's not that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is every crew hopefully <laughs> will do what we did on that day. And, and that's just a testament to the fire service in general and the type of people we hire. I think there's a lot of people of high character that love people and want to do a good job for the community and a good job for each other. So, um, so back to the story that, so what ended up happening is they're searching for me. I'm searching for them. And at this point, like I'm getting to the point where I'm losing consciousness. So, um, I know that I'm getting dizzy. I know that I'm starting not to be able to stay up on my knees. I'm starting to fall to the ground. Um, the hose line's starting to push me around. My hands are burning to the point where like I can no longer hold the hose line. So I got it tucked in my armpit and it's just flopping all over the place and I'm sort of flopping around with it. Then a moment came, I think I mentioned this on the video that we put out after a moment came where I became completely at peace and content with like, well, I'm going to stay in here until the end, and I can't believe I'm going to die in a house fire, but I'm, I'm going to. Jeez. And I know and I know I'm this close to the door, and you I know, just... And I, I've heard this story so many times, man, but it, yeah. just, makes my, it just makes my gut turn. Yeah. Um, I was just, um, you know, part of what people... And what I didn't say in the introduction is I'm a committed Christian. So, like, part of this was, like, I can't believe I'm going to meet my Savior. And, you know, like, I was okay with it in the moment. Um, what a lot of people may not know about the story is that was my very first shift back from family leave where I had my second daughter. So my daughter's like, she was born on the third and this is the the 12th. So wow. she's like brand new. Yeah. I had vacation. I had vacation on this day that I canceled the day before and came to work on this shift, oh which gosh. is another crazy part of the story. But it just peace came over me and I was okay with it. And I was like, man, this is, this is, you know, crazy. I can't believe this is going to happen. And then my whole family flashed before my eyes. So like my wife's face, my my older daughter's face, my newborn's face, flat, like, you know, just sort of had that moment that people talk about in the movies where my family flashed before my eyes and I snapped out of it and I said, I can't, 
I can't die in here. Like I have a family to protect and provide for, uh, to love and to raise my kids and I can't do this. So that's the moment I decided, decided to, I'm going to have to crawl out on the line and hopefully, you know, I'm going to find Luke in the process and I just can't stay right here anymore and I'm going to have to get out. So the way that the hose was looped in into the house, I knew that I could drop the hose line and make a beeline towards where I knew that the door was and just con- and just find the hose line there. And my plan was to crawl out from that point out the front door, thinking that Luke and Albert were right around there. Um, Luke was kind of on the hose line and on the wall, and because he could hear where I was flowing water from, like closing that loop and coming all the way to the line just wasn't an option. The conditions were just too bad he burned his forehead his chest his wrists and hands and stuff too so he's like second degree third degree burns so he's keeping in contact with albert in the hose line and just stretching his whole body out just with his arms just flailing trying to because he so, so when mind, albert came right in there. he had found luke him and luke yeah were together because he was feeding line at the front door and albert was trying to albert in the whole process was tr- he recognized the conditions that the conditions changed before he got there he was trying to bring us back to the front the front door so he was he sent luke in to grab me pull me back and albert was going in with them so at this point those two guys are together and both those guys are searching for me and just you know like i said because of conditions and because of where i was positioned in the house and where they could hear my water flowing from yet where the hose line was leading they didn't they knew that they had to reach sort of back behind them and out towards the middle of the room albert's got his tick camera he's trying to find me um, it's completely whited out just because yeah. of how hot it was. Um, so basically I shut the hose line down. They heard, they heard the water shut down. So now they're on the hose line. I make that crawl from where I shut the line down to the hose line that's leading in the front door. And that's where Albert said he could feel my bottle. And I could, I sort of bumped into those guys. And once I bumped into those guys, I stinking jumped out of that front door as fast as I could, like I dove out. Um, those guys just said they were still inside, and they just said that they they felt me. He reached and touched Albert, reached and touched me with his hands. I bumped into those guys, knew that they were there, and at that point, I just bailed out as fast as I could. So Albert just said, like a body just went fly, <laughs> just went flying past them. So they both came out. And those guys are impressive the way that they stayed in there the whole time, not really knowing I was injured. Yeah, like I in my mind, I was thinking Luke was injured, and thinking like he needed to be rescued. I, I, I didn't mention this part, but I tried to call a mayday. Um, and that's one of the sort of the lessons learned is just where I was keeping my radio at the time. I was keeping it on that loop on the outside of our turnout coat. Oh yeah. So it was just exposed to the environment. It wasn't protected in my pocket. It was just connected. I just knew how important it was to listen to it and to be able to talk in it, even as a backseat fireman. So I just always kept it there without, you know, not really being trained otherwise. And so I, I attempted to call a mayday. That was before I shut the line down. Attempted to call a mayday, and I just fired it out there. I just mayday, 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 this firefighter block. I'm by the front door. Um, I'm being burned. I can't find Luke. That's what I remember saying. That was it. <laughs> I shut the radio off. And did that, trans- did that transmission get out? <laughs> no. And so, you know, I don't know for sure whether or not, like, my hands were so badly burned that I didn't press a button Couldn't fully. Couldn't key the mic around. Couldn't key the mic. And just with everything that, you know, I've studied since then, like it's a common occurrence to have your the guts of your radio to reach an internal temperature to where they just fail. 
and yeah. it's a it's a pretty low temperature. Yeah. And given the fact that my radio was on the outside of my turnouts, I think it's something like 160 degrees. I don't know. Cody Worrell is the one that told me that. Yeah, that, the number that comes to my mind is 140, maybe but it might be 160. So it's somewhere in that it's way in that range. It's low. It's way lower than you would expect for a fire <laughs> fireman to have. Yeah. You know, in conditions where we're constantly in conditions that are well over that. Yeah. So um, there's a possibility that the radio just failed. So yeah. we don't know for sure. And, and, and even across the country, um, people have had radios fail like that on calls where they get sent out and be tested and they come and they're, te- and they test fine because the, the internal guts have reached a normal temperature. Again. Yeah. They reach, they set back into their connection points or whatever. Yeah, uh-huh. So yeah, that, I've, that's I've heard potential about that. for that might've been what happened to me. I don't know. Yeah. Um, they talk about that in NIOSH studies all the time where member attempted a May day, you know, they report that the radio didn't work and then they sure. test the radio and it worked. Right. So, so that happened. Um, so you guys bail out, and I want to I want to repeat this fact. I've said it a couple times, but I want to repeat the fact that that this all transpired in about ninety seconds from when you guys went. That's in. right. The story makes it seem like it was a thirty minute operation or something, right. just because I want to hit all sort of everything that we were yeah. thinking and feeling in there. But yeah, it was a very short time. Um, I forget like our total on scene time from Albert's on scene report to his communication with command now he's interior his communication with command to get als and a rescue for an injured firefighter to the front man i just watched the video a couple weeks ago as we were as i was preparing for this but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like five six seven minutes like the whole the whole incident was short and our time actually on the interior was something like two minutes or less so bailed out and that's one uh and that's when (laughs) Luke finally uh, came up to me and he's like, you know, I got this look. They carry this. So they lift me over the that wall. They carry me to the center of that yard. This is where some of those news, the f- news footage has me. And it's sort of a crazy scene because like you can't even, you can only see our boots um, in the front yard. That's how now we're just, we're in the smoke still. And so some of this news footage can just see like, you know, 20 firemen surrounding me and yeah. a, you can see the gurney wheels and you can see some of those guys like, you know, turn out boots in the bottom of their pants. Cause the conditions have been, have gotten so bad since, um, you know, I didn't really mention what ladder 26 did or engine 26 or any of those guys, but now those guys carry me to the front of the, you know, into the front yard. And I look up at Luke and I was like, I'm burned. It felt like, when I jumped out, I, I remember this moment distinctly. When I jumped out from being interior on that house fire to this November day, I felt like I had jumped into an ice bath. Like I, <laughs> I felt like it was the coldest thing I'd ever experienced in my life. So now I'm freezing cold after just being, but, but it felt good after being just that hot. It was such a weird transition. But um, And he goes, I know, man, we're all burned up. That was hot. Like right now he's just thinking like we got bubbled ears and like, right. you know. Yeah, man, we're burnt. Can you yeah. fight? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need to pull our hose line to the back of the house and start putting this thing out. And I looked at him. I'm like, no, dude, I'm burned bad. And I'm like, you're going to have to take my gloves off. And he's like, what? And I'm like, you're going to have to pull my gloves off. And I'll, I'll never forget the look on his, or the look on his face. He pulled one of my gloves off and I had no skin left. My whole, my whole hand sloughed off in the glove with it. And he just like stumbled backwards and just had this this look on his face like his eyes are wide open now. Yeah. And you can see at this moment, like everybody sort of understands the gravity of what happened. Um, because it was so short, it was like, hey, and then that's when Albert cleared command and said, hey, we need treatment. We need ALS and rescue to the front for an injured firefighter. And then um, 
you know, our guys, when they hear injured firefighter, like everyone in the world came to help every yeah. stage company. I think it got bounced on first alarm already. Every stage company, every guy wants to, what's the help? So now I'm surrounded and those guys are just peeling my gear off and starting to see how bad I was burned. Um, my burn has progressed pretty significantly while I was at the hospital. So like some of the early pictures, it looks bad, but like some of the pictures two days later, it looks that much worse. Yeah. So, um, rescue 26. So how, what percentage of, uh, what percentage of your body was burned? Um, the only, the only percentage that County counted that I've seen in documentation was anything that they had to skin graft. So I had third and fourth degree burns to about 20% of my body. And that doesn't count like some of the first degree and some of the smaller second degree stuff that I had in other places. So I, I guess probably 30 to 40% total body surface area with like the really severe burns, um, 20%. Yeah. But like it covers from my shoulders down to my ankles almost. Right. Everything's just, burned, just everything's varying burns, degrees but just of spots. Yeah. So like more severe spots. So like, um, you can see like my quads have big spots in them, but like the surrounding skin is good. My calves have these big spots in them, but the surrounding skin is good. My back only has one big spot in it, except for my stuff. So the largest burn that I have is when I told you my stomach went. My whole stomach all the way to my back is burned, but I have burns on my wrist, my arms, everywhere. But the way that my burns pattern, my burns are, the pattern of the burns are, is pretty fortunate. It's a blessing because rarely do, does it cover joints apart from my hands and my mm-hmm. wrist and up here on my left arm into my chest. Which for burn victims, like any burn victim knows, when burns either are circumferential or cover joints and end up being a part where a lot of mobility is affected, yeah, that's the really difficult thing to things to come back from. So from that point, um, they load me in a in rescue twenty six. Albert and Luke jump in the back along with some guys from Glendale, and rescue twenty six transports me to county. Dumped every pain medicine that they had <laughs> that they had in the boxes back there. I still remember, like my first one of the first things that I remember the county nurses and doctors telling me is like, "You gotta breathe. You gotta take a deep breath. You gotta breathe." Because like because they even gave me pain, pain, more pain medicine right. when I got there. So they totally just you know my central nervous system and my like my um, my respiratory drive was just, <laughs> was just conked out. So like they were trying not to intubate me, but like. Right. Um, they were worried about that. So they were, my, my O2 sats were like in the seventies or eighties. So they were coaching me to breathe more. Um, so those guys did a great job treating me and getting me to the hospital. And how, how so long did you end up, how long did you end up being in County? 34 days. So a little bit over a month, 34 days total. I think that, I think based on just like some factors, like they were trying to get me out before Christmas day. Um, they, I think they let me out a touch early based on the way that I looked. I looked bad. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd have brought some of the pictures. Like if this was like videotape, like some of the pictures well, of me when I left, you know, like, what we can do I is crazy. I, I would, I'll have you share some of those photos with me and we'll post them with, okay. along with the podcast. Okay. So that's people a good can, idea. People can look back and yeah. you know, go to the place where you download yeah. the podcast and you'll see, you'll see some pics. Yeah. Th- they have a special name. For the dead skin of like when you're when you're auto grafted when you have your own skin applied to your injury sites, uh-huh. I think it's called escar tissue, but I don't know for sure. But like 
the edges of my skin was pink and everything in the middle was white. And I'm just thinking like, you guys are going to send me, I wanted to go home. There's nothing more that I wanted than to just get the heck out of my little room at County hospital and get normal sleep and try to get back to some sort of like, you know, trying to get back healthy. But, uh, yeah, they sent me home and my wife became my nurse for a while. You know, what a saint. She's got a brand newborn at home, which is in and of itself incredibly demanding. Yeah. And then she's got to take care of you. Another baby. <laughs> Another big baby. <laughs> so, so hey, go she, back though. So let's talk about, we'll talk more about your wife and, yeah. and this, the home piece here. And uh, But what was, what was it like in the hospital? Like what, what is the basic of the treatment there? Like what do they do and how does that, how horrible is that, man? It's got to be just freaking miserable. <laughs> It's hard to communicate how bad it was. It was even even like you can imagine it based on what I'm about to tell you, but like it was hard. Um, it was super hard. So basically, what their goal was um, initially, the reports were a little bit less severe, and they weren't sure how significant the treatment was going to end up being or how aggressive they had to be. But they knew that they had to get me in for surgery to start making a plan for whether or not these things would be able to heal on their own or if they were going to take extensive skin grafts. Yeah. Um, and based on the progression of those first few days, I think I was reading, I was reading some text messages. I've saved all the text messages and a lot of the emails from the incident. I mean, it was apart from like becoming a Christian and like marrying my wife and having my kids. This is probably the most significant incident or life shaping incident that I've had happen in my life. But, uh, um, so I've saved all those things so I can see sort of the timeline, which is sort of interesting. So I think three days later, I think my mom sent a text message out to my church mm-hmm. saying, this is going to be a long road. And that now they're talking about autographs. And so I think about three days in, I knew that it was going to be pretty significant, yeah. difficult treatment. So basically their goal is to, is to get my injury sites to a point that they could, to, that they can accept my own skin as a covering for the injury. Where are they? I mean, based on your burns, like, where are they grafting from? <laughs> they harvested, they harvested all the skin that they autografted to my upper body injuries from my back. Remember, I told you I just have one spot on my back. Yeah. And then, so like, so like my around my waist is burned. So everything in between that one spot and around my waist, they shaved all that skin off. <laughs> And either stapled it or sutured it to yeah. all my injury sites on my upper body. And then you're like, "Hey, I feel good laying on my back." Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> and that was one of the most painful parts of the whole thing. Is mm. they literally have this device that they just run over your back and they shave. They just shave the skin off. And the, depending on where the skin graft is going, yeah, they either do a one to one ratio and just take that skin and apply it right to the injury site, or they put it through this big gnarly contraption that spreads the skin out just to be able to be more efficient with the skin that they harvest and then they place that sort of it's like a grid it's like you could see the difference between my one-to-one grass and my spread out grass because of the way that the pattern is Interesting. and their goal is to make everything visible look good and anything that's like not going to be visible from clothes they'll they'll stretch that skin out and, and apply it to you so the way that the treatment process worked is their goal is to is to treat the injury sites to a point that when they apply the autographs, autographs is just a way to say, like, it's my own skin now. Yeah. Your body won't take any other skin. So no donors, no nothing like that can stay permanently. So it has to be your own skin. Get them to a point that they'll accept. And the skin grafts and, like, you know, there's enough 
blood vessel innervation in that skin that they'll be it'll be able to survive because the last thing that they want to do is do it again right so the so what happens there is that they um, once they know that they have to do grafting they either use pig skin or cadaver skin to sort of promote blood vessel growth so this is so they they do a big debridement right they they scrub everything out right to get all the the dead flesh and all the burned flesh and all the garbage out and then they use these these other skin grafts or temporary grafts to help the to help the tissue bed heal. Exactly. And the debridement is not a one-time process. It's almost an everyday process. Yeah. So that was one of the hard parts is dressing changes were every day. Debridement was often, really often. Yeah. And then when you actually go into surgery, that's when the more intense, like, um, cutting away of stuff happens. So they actually cut down... Like they've had, they had to cut through most of my skin in certain areas. They had to cut into muscle and their goal. I mean, this is just from memory. Like I, a doctor would be able to explain it a lot better, but their goal is to, to get things to the point that they bleed. Yeah. So they're cutting away everything that's totally dead and damaged and useless. They're just taken away. Right. It's almost like peeling a bush, all the dead stuff. They just rip it away. So that the healthy stuff. You got to prune it. Yeah. You got to prune it. Yeah. So their goal was to just make everything bleed. So they would just rip away, cut away take out chunks of muscle yeah um, take out all the dead skin things would bleed real bad and then they would cover it with cadaver skin and they'd send me back and we're talking eight hour surgeries so horrific yeah. like awful like and you're just i'm are they intimidating you for this oh yeah yeah so they're taking oh, yeah. you putting you out totally. yeah. oh yeah yeah i mean you um, must have been on pain meds for quite some time yeah i was on pain meds for a long time yeah so that was a process then they would I mean, every surgery, the hope was to autograph something. Yeah. And so I went through that process three times. So once a week for three weeks, I went through that process where they would cut away a bunch of stuff. They would staple uh, cadaver skin and send me out hoping that that blood vessel growth underneath. Um, so their hope would be once they rip off that cadaver skin, that it would bleed with it because that means that some of those blood vessels are innervating that skin and ready to take my own grafts. So that was one Boy. of the most emotionally taxing things was every time the hope was to, to get to the point where you're able to be autografted. And for three weeks now, every time I come out of surgery feeling like I got ran over by a semi truck and yeah. in so much pain and so nauseous and sick and tired and wore out and, you know, I'm losing weight constantly cause I can't eat anything. One of the things that people don't know is when, when you get burned that bad, you're so severely dehydrated that you you can't produce any saliva. Oh. So now I can't eat anything. I can't swallow it. So now like Interesting. they're running fluid in me like crazy. They start a central line. I got a feeding tube in now because one of the main things that happens, um, one of the main things for treatment is to get enough protein in your body so that um, it allows for that uh, ability for your body to take those skin grafts. The skin grafts will die without a significant amount of protein, more than you would eat on a normal day as a healthy person. So they just have to dump protein in me all day, every oh day. So now I have a feeding tube through my nose down into my stomach. One of the, it was yeah. horrible. That, well, that and if you're sucked. losing weight, right, you're not maintaining a healthy weight. No. That's not good. Right? No. You're not staying robust. I look sick. Though. My eyes, you, some of these pictures, like my eyes are sunk in, my cheekbones are showing. Is my hair's all greasy. I have a beard. Like I look terrible <laughs> looking back at some of these pictures, but that was one of the mo most emotionally taxing things is to come into surgery, be waking up from anesthesia, throwing up all over the place, mm. sick as can be in so much pain. I can't even sit still. And then the doctor will come in and tell you like, Hey, 
We weren't able to autograph anything at this time. Doesn't mean this wasn't important surgery. We still had to do this. It was necessary for your treatment, but we weren't able to accomplish anything really. So the only thing that they accomplished is like trying for the next time for this to hopefully get me to the point where I start being able yeah. to get autographed. Let's talk about the collateral piece of this. How's your family doing all this? Um, well, you know, my wife gets a phone call on the, on the day that I get hurt from battalion four. That's, I think she got the phone call from battalion four. Somebody called her. Um, battalion four is the one who picked her up from the house. I know that for sure. Basically saying like, Hey, your husband was injured in a fire and we're going to come pick you up and take you to the hospital. And like, if you know my wife, she's as, she's as rock solid of a person like she's the most impressive person that I know, just straight up, most impressive person that I know. Her faith, like in God, is like one of the most impressive things about her. <laughs> so, like for her, although she, you know, obviously loves me and cares a lot and is super concerned, like she just meets these trials with like full faith and trust, which is an impressive um, character quality. Yeah. So, for her, it's like okay, we got this. I'll, I'll be here. You know, I'll, I'll be ready for one. No freak out. No, like, you know, obviously sad concern when she sees me. Obviously the same thing. Emotions, you know, rise to the surface and stuff. But she's just strong. She's just really strong. So um, luckily, um, I think my sister-in-law was at the house at the time. So I think she was able to watch the kids while, while my wife went to the hospital. But she just had the baby. My daughter was, you know, I forget, eight or nine days old or something. Right. Um my other daughter was two and a half. So, I mean, just taking a step back from the actual mo time, you know, then she sees me like I'm in, I can't sit still. I'm in so much pain. You know, she could see all the, she could see how bad it looks. I look really badly hurt. And now, you know, she's concerned and stuff, but, uh, taking a step back, I mean, 34 days in the hospital. She's, she made it there every day with two kids. She spent a lot, like the bulk of her days there. Um, the rest of my extended family and was there as well a lot for a lot of the time. Um, but you know, just getting, just getting like, you know, the the rapid progression of how bad the injury was like was a surprise. So like dealing with like news all the time of this is worse and worse and worse than we thought. <laughs> then getting news, you know, waiting eight hours for a surgery. One of which, like, my blood pressure tanked and my heart rate shot through the roof and they ended up having to dump a ton of blood in me to make sure, like, they were trying to prevent me from coding on, on the table. Like, stuff like that happened where, yeah. you know, you get this these reports, the doctors are giving updates because it's eight hours and they're sitting on the edge of their chair and they're hearing things like, hey, we're having to use a lot of blood. And, you know, yeah. so they're, they're getting reports from doctors, you know, they're sitting through eight-hour surgeries. You know, I look like garbage nobody has seen these burns for the most part because every time anybody sees me like i'm totally covered up with dressings Bandage like a mummy yeah yeah and so and then when they take you to do dressing changes you're in some big shower room you guys have probably seen it going to county hospital and stuff that big shower room towards towards the back of that main you know the big injuries that are there like by the trauma department and the emergency department yeah so they take me there to do all the changes you know so they're wondering what does this mean for life what does this mean for the future we're getting told like most likely you're never going to be a fireman again. There's a chance that you should probably move away from Phoenix because of how intense the heat is. And his burns are such that like you might want to consider a different climate and start thinking about a different career. 
they said all these things compassionately, you know, wow. but the doctors were basically trying to. But that's a lot to, to take like, in, man. That's a, those are huge yeah. impacts. You know, the, the job that I love and I've wanted since I was 16 years old, you know what I mean? Yeah. Now possibly ripped from me and, you know, the security and the provision aspect of all that. Not to mention, is he going to get back to being healthy and the normal dad and husband that he was before? And yeah, so there's a lot of emotional hardship, you know, but like I said, I mean, a, a big part of like our outlook on life is like driven by the character of God and what he says in his word. So we're clinging to those things. We're clinging to his character. He's yeah. trustworthy. You know, he's sovereign and wise and good and loving. And we're clinging to that. And then his word says a lot about the benefits of trials and their purpose in life. And so we're clinging to those things. And he's promised a lot of things, you know, his presence and being with us and giving us the, you know, he sustains us and all these things. So we're, you know, we're thinking about verses like Romans eight twenty eight, where he talks about all things work together for his glory and our good. So like I'm saying, like, I know this is for my good for some reason. And then the Bible talks about what kind of good trials accomplish, like in a growth in your character, increased dependence on him. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, second Corinthians one, where it talks about God's comforting you so that you'll be a better comforter of other people in the future. So all these verses, like one of the first things I asked for is my Bible. And I just want to start searching the word and see like, you know, what are trials? Why do they exist? And how do our, how, how do I respond to it? And yeah. my wife is thinking the same thing. So we're just trying to be faithful Christians who trust God and who move through this trial in such a way where Christ is honored and we're taking advantage of the benefits that happen in trials so there's a bigger worldview picture behind this like it's it's not like an accident in our view that happened out of nowhere you know like there's god's sovereignty at work and his goodness at work in some way and we're just trying to make sure that we're faithful in those things yeah i i I fully believe that there are lessons to be learned in every trial right that's regardless of your of your faith view there's a reason that we're here and i feel that reason is to learn and grow (laughs) Right. You're going to learn it because at every turn, there's something to learn and to grow from. Right. And so, um, you know, these trials that are, that are so seemingly indomitable, uh, there's something that you can come away with and, uh, not to be Pollyanna and not to, not to silver, you know, to put a silver lining on everything. I don't want to do this again. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I'll I'll try to learn what I can. (laughs) Exactly. But, but it happened Uh and therefore, what can we, how can we grow from this? Yeah. You know, um, not to make this about me, but I, I will just offer this insight. Uh, my dad and my brother passed away a week apart. Wow. And I was just like, holy crap, this is, uh, I don't know what to do with this. Uh-huh. And the compassion that was poured out to me by friends and family, you know, fire department family and, and, and outside friends and family, uh, help me understand how important it is to just be present for people when they're going through trials. Right. So that, that was the, you know, yeah, it was hard. And I knew that like, there's nothing that anybody could do to make it feel less crappy, Yep. but, but over, but they could be recognized that, Hey, we see you. We see that you're hurting. We are here for you. Yeah. And that was my lesson, right? That was one of, one of many lessons, but that's one of the lessons that I took away from that. And, um, and so we talk about, you know, you spent 34 days in the burn unit and then you go home, you've got a brand new baby, you've got all these reasons to, to, to live. And, um, but yet you're going through this massive, uh, for lack of a better expression, shit storm. <laughs> and, yep. um, you know, and, but when you come home, 
you're not out of the woods yet. No. Right? So what, how much longer are you, I mean, how long does the ordeal really last? Yeah. Um, just to backtrack for a second, I forgot to sort of mention like my kids and that whole thing too. Yeah. Like my two and a half year old, she's wondering, she, so now they're not seeing me ever. I think yeah, I only held, dad's not home. Yeah. No, what the heck? Maddie was, you know, that whole first month I held her twice. My, my newborn, you, you know, like yeah. it's one of those things where it's crazy to look back on and now they're being drugged to the hospitals and now they're with, you know, my, my, my extended family in the fire department and my church and everybody like you mentioned, like people being there for you. Yeah. Like I almost tear up when I think about how everybody served me and loved me and how much that, how big of a deal it was that they stepped up the way that they did. It was, it was a sight to see, but, uh, yeah. so they're getting passed to grandparents and friends and my brothers and, and like you know, Heather's family and all those things. So it was a trial for them too. Uh, you know, they're young enough to where they only remember it because of the pictures that they see of them around. But one of my favorite pictures I got, you know, hospital gown on, I'm all the way uh, wrapped up like a mummy. I got a central line through my neck going down into my heart. I got a feeding tube in my nose and uh, my daughter is, I was in the waiting room. My daughter is standing next to me. She's two and a half. And she's on the bench next to me looking like, just looking right at me. She's probably only like five inches from my face. And she's got a shirt that Heather bought her that says, uh, Daddy's my hero. And it's just one of my favorite shirts that I have. <laughs> or my favorite pictures that I have of that incident. But So home life, um, transition from being cared for and treated by like a team of medical professionals to my wife was trained in like a, a two-hour process. When, so they... So I, I still remember this. I was sitting in the shower room. They had peeled everything off me, just sitting there butt naked in the shower room. <laughs> um, you lose a – you. one of the things we're talking about character growth, like humility is a big one that grew because of how much – I mean, I didn't even mention like how I wasn't able to wipe myself or eat food. I mean, I'm being fed. I'm being cared for after I go to the bathroom. Like part of one – after they autographed you, part of what happens there is they splint you so you don't move and rip the autographs off. So, like, I'm without right. my hands and arms for a week after. I'm without my legs for a week after they do that. I can't walk. I'm using bedpans. Like, there's just so much that goes into, like, how terrible that hospital time was yeah. that I didn't even really get into. But so I still remember sitting there. Um, all the surgeons, some of the residents come in and some of the nurses that are there and the physical therapist. So I got like a team of 20 people in the shower room surrounding me. I got a towel over myself and they're just looking at every part of my body. And I'm just thinking in my mind, like I'm praying to God, please say that I can go home. But I'm looking at my body and I'm thinking, there's no chance <laughs> they're letting me go home today because I look terrible. And then uh, the doc, I remember the surgeon looked at me they were so great. The staff there was so fantastic. But he looked at me. He's like, you want to go home today? And I go, yeah. He goes, all right. We'll send you home. So then at that point, they brought my wife in and they showed her how everything looked. And so they took then So they brought her through the process of like how you clean the, how you clean all the dead tissue out. What happens when we start at, when, when you have to rewrap you. So they, so they took me into the room and they had some of the text there show me, show her what to use in what order. So there's certain different things that have to go first and something that goes second, then it gets wrapped in a certain way so that it stays. And then here's how the pressure garments go. And so she's just learning all this in one shot. And, oh then, my goodness. and yeah. then they say, all right, it's all, it's all yours from here. So every day it was a two hour process of showering. Um, just trying to scrape out all the dead stuff so that the other stuff can kind of grow in and be healthy. And then having her help me with all that, 
we had like a hospital shower chair. I'd walk out um, to, you know, to the walk-in part of my bathroom and then I would just sit there while Heather went to work and she would, she would clean up everything that needed to be cleaned up. She would rewrap everything. She would put all the appropriate bandages on certain bandages do certain things. So like she had to put certain ones on. So then she would wrap me in um, either one of my sister-in-laws or some of my family or my mom would come and watch the girls while Heather did this for two hours. And so it was a process of like physical therapy, you know, her treatment and care, trying to get sleep and rest and just trying to figure out a way to get some energy back up and start to get healthy and start to get strong and start to look at and potentially get back to the job. Yeah. My dad for the first while, cause I was on so many pain medications would come and pick me up from my house. There was one spot in the Valley that they said, you have to go here if you're, if you're looking to get back on the fire department and it was rehab plus used to be on 40th street and Thomas. Um, they had like some people that had some exposure to burn injuries in the past where they had recently like rehabbed some burn, some significantly burned people. And some of their residents were like County hospital PTs and OTs that had wow. trained at rehab plus and went to County to work. And so they were referring people back there. So my dad would pick me up from 51st Avenue and Bell where I lived at the time and take me all the way to 40th street and Thomas every day. And they'd kick my butt pretty good there for a while. So it was just having a team there where the physical therapists were great, but also the people that were like physical trainers. Um, I still remember he asked me a question the first day I was there, just like, hey, do you want to be back on a fire truck? And I was like, yeah. And game on from that point forward. Like He was Stand like one of the pay. best guys. Yeah, one of the best combinations of like support and concern and care for me and like I'm not going to let you get away with anything. I'm going to push you as hard as I can. Like, I'm going to be in your, you know. It, it was, at the moment I said that, it was his goal to do everything that I needed to help me be successful, which is, I still am friends with him to this day. I talk to him all the time. So, it's just one of those things where relationships got built throughout. But home life was tough. I mean, Christmas Day was shortly after. I'm having my dad come over and put together, you know, Christmas toys for the kids. <laughs> I can barely, you know, sit up for a certain amount of time. So, like, a lot of those pictures, I'm pale and I'm... So like I could, I'll give you an hour and then I got to go back to bed type of thing. So it was just hard. It was just hard acclimating to that. Yeah. So how long did it take you before you were, you felt for quote unquote normal? Um, I would say, I don't really remember. I would say probably in a month after I got home, I was starting to do all the daily activities and stuff, like starting to drive myself down to the rehab plus. Um, you know, Heather was cooking for me, giving me my medicines, doing a bunch of things, but like, I wanted to be involved in a part of everything as best I could Yeah, and just get back to some level of normalcy. Um, but yeah, it was probably about a month and I was like beginning to drive and cooking food and sleeping, you know, my pattern of sleeping came back to normal a little bit. How long for you back on the job? Five and a half months which is an insanely short period of time compared to what yeah. they thought. I mean, they thought at least a year, if ever. And, uh, man, like, you know, just speaking about God being good, it was one of those things where, like, once things progressed, they progressed fast. So all of a sudden I was getting stronger. I was feeling better. My energy was rising. Um, you know, uh, I went down to the academy and started 
you know, work in light duty and I picked there just because I would be able to do intro to heat with those guys and do the flashover <laughs> chamber to see like, am I, is my skin going to be feel? able to hold up in the, yeah. these environments? So I felt like I checked that box off. I was starting to get strong enough to think that I could return to the job and be an asset to a, to the crew, you know, and I only had one more hurdle and that was the mental hurdle of like how I'd respond, you know, once I saw another column and I'm responding in a fire truck license sirens, like, how am I going to react to that? And that was a very real challenge. Like, you know, that's some of the, some of the thing like that talking with other burn victims across the country, I've been plugged into like the DC firefighter burn foundation and keep in touch with a lot of those guys. And so they're sort of like a national international group that just helps people recover from things like this. Um, talking to a lot of those guys, it's sort of, sort of the unspoken reality. You don't want to seem weak. You don't want to seem like you're scared. You don't want to seem like this is going to be difficult or I might not react the way that I hope I would. I mean, I've been a fireman. I forget how much time I had on the job at the time. You know, I've been 10 years on the job or something. I'm supposed to just be able to jump back and fight fire again. And that's just not how I felt, you know, like it, I, I wanted to, I wanted just to, I had one more monkey on my back. I just wanted to get back on a fire truck and fight another fire and get that under my belt. So that's what it was like getting back. I just had to check those boxes, get physically ready, get mentally and emotionally ready and have my energy be up and all that stuff. Yeah. Have my skin be able to be able to take the heat. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a real trauma, uh, physically and mentally. Uh And I think we don't recognize that piece as much as we probably should. Just thinking through like how it affected my family too. Like I didn't even really mention like my parents and my brother who's on the job who like they're absolutely fantastic as well. But like now he's now everyone's recognizing how dangerous this thing is and how right. he's going to go back to work one day. And now Jordan has to get back on a fire truck and fight fire. And I don't know. So there's a lot of pieces that I know I've been blabbering for a long time, but there's a lot of pieces behind all that. But yeah. You know, we, we talked about life lessons, right? Like how, yeah. how there's learn there's learning in all these things. So when you reflect back on this, what are, what are some of the big takeaways for you that have, that are, you know, you talked about this being a, one of the, like the, you know, marriage, children, and then <laughs> this, this being yeah. the, you know, life shaping event. Yeah. So what are some of the things that have been shaped for you in this? Professionally? Oh, just, yeah. Yeah. Both. Okay. Um, I think I'm a, a much better fireman now than I was then. Um, I don't know, maybe Jackson and, and Luke and the other guys that were with me can attest. Like, I think I was a good fireman before, but one of the things that I talk about is I, I think right now I have a much clearer understanding of the risk management profile than I ever have. Um, you know, I, I went in there thinking that I was risking a lot to save saveable lives once I felt the conditions, I think I probably knew by instinct that I was only going to risk a little bit for saveable property. And then once Luke was missing, now I'm in the real green. Like I'm now I'm for sure risking my life to save saveable lives. So I think there was a transition there where I went from green to yellow back to green. But <clears throat> knowing what I know now, I think, I hope if I had that exact same call again, once once we're on our knees and trying to change conditions, I'm in a vacant house. There's no way that there's any saveable lives in here. Um, based on what I now know about fire behavior and fire dynamics and task level tactics and how do we can use our host streams in a different way than we ever thought we would. And, you know, unburned side versus burned side and, you know, all those types of things that we can get into. Like, I hope right now, the minute I had to get on my knees and open the line to change conditions would be the same moment I would think I'm risking too much. 
this is saleable property and I could reposition in a different tactical position and still try to protect this property as best I can, but from a safer, more tactically appropriate position. And so hopefully right now we would just, hey man, this is too hot for us to be in this house. Let's back out. Let's redeploy our hose lines to the back of the house. Let's fight this fire from, you know, an upwind. Is that the right word? <laughs> Up, upwind position. Yeah, I think so. Um, from the burn side and just put this fire out where we could see it from an exterior position and we'll work our way to the interior when conditions are appropriate. And this way we're risking only a little bit for saleable property and not risking too much. And so... I've had some calls as a company officer and some calls since then as a backseat guy. And I've just, the, it's clear to me what I'm risking and why. I know the why behind the what better than I ever have. The, that's, that's an important jump to make because when you become a company officer, uh, it's, not, you know, it's not only your own ass on the line. Right. right? There are other, other butts on the line as well. And yeah. you have a... Uh, burden of stewardship and responsibility for the men and women that are working with you on that truck. Yeah. And when you're the, you know, when you're the supervisor and the company officer, it's your responsibility to make those hard decisions yeah. and, and, and it's difficult. So it's good that you have that, that your perspective has shifted in a way that's, yeah. you know, the operational maturity, right? You've yeah. grown up a little bit and recognize it. Hard and, lesson to learn. And you know what drives you? Like what drives me is not what my backseat thinks of me <laughs> there's right. not this i mean don't get me wrong it's not like i don't deal with this at all but there's not this like what's my reputation what's what are people going to think of me if i back these guys out of a position that everybody in the backseat wants to be on the nozzle in the firefight on the interior all the time you know yeah and it's my job to think through like what's the right thing to do and still be able to give that order to back out of a house that's on fire to get in a better tactical position in a safer position to be more effective even though I would have hated to do that when I was in the backseat. So it's, it's just like being driven by what's right and not the emotion of like, how am I going to be perceived at this level? You know, like I still want to, I still want to be aggressive. I still want to be an interior fire captain. I still want to do all the things that Phoenix fire department is known for, but I'm willing to pull the plug if the plug needs to be pulled. I'm willing to make a, a change in my tactical position. If it's the most important, the most appropriate thing to do on that call. Like those are just things that like, even if you give me a hard time later, if I could go to sleep at night and know that I was trying to keep you safe and doing a good job for the call, like I'm going to make those decisions and be okay with it. Yeah. And that was part of the jump to that position is like, I knew that in the backseat that I was ready to like be that kind of captain. So I would say another lesson was my radio position. I've never ever had my radio in that same position since then. <laughs> I now use a lapel mic with my radio in my pocket. Keep it buried in your every pocket. Time. And I'm still surprised at how often, you know, recently a rover, how often people still don't use lapel mics. And it's just something that I encourage every crew that I rove into when I was a rover and even my crew now at Engine 37, like, hey, get a lapel mic and use it, even in the backseat. Those guys keep the radio in their pocket, but they're comfortable keying the mic from there. But I just think listening and being able to operate on the radio was good with a lapel mic. So that's a big one. Um, like I said, just my understanding of fire dynamics and fire behavior in the new fire environment has grown a lot since that call. The amount of fuels that were in there, you know, carpet and tr and trash can't like, I'm, I'm not saying trash cans. I'm saying like things that you, you would keep outside of your house, like big <laughs> trash barrels, like are in there and just like, you know, there was a ton of fuel in there. So like I, I had a small understanding of like, okay, if I have these conditions, 
here's what's going on. I had, I knew about like rapid fire events, like flash over and backdraft. Like I had an understanding of like how to control, you know, um, the heat in a compartment fire with my nozzle. I, I thought I did a decent job at those things, but I understand flow path better now. Uh, I understand like a transitional attack better. I would have never done that in the past. I would now, um, I understand like, Hey, do we push fire and smoke if we're flowing water with appropriate hose stream from the burn side of a building? You know, like probably not. Those things need to be coordinated and communicated. Um, but I just understand the fire environment better than, than I ever have. And that drives my decision-making as a captain. Those things come from just like studying other fires that were like mine. I mean, I was on UL, I was on NIST, I was watching videos. I just wanted to understand what happened to me and why. Why did that failure yeah. in the back of the house change the conditions so abruptly? I mean, I was right smack in the middle of that flow path, and that's why I was burning up. And those guys were burning, but not as bad as because because the temperatures that I was dealing with were higher in the flow path, and the velocity by like the velocity by which the flow path was flowing past me creates an effect the, the venturi effect yep, the or venturi something effect, exactly. so i mean i understand those things better now like it might have been smart for me to once i realized that to move i just thought the whole thing was stinking hot and it was but like i was actually by a front door and it was trying to go from high pressure and high heat to low pressure and low heat and i was standing right in the middle of it yeah so now, I mean, we're talking about all this like mid-rise stuff and thinking through like working down these big long hallways and how that might affect us. Like my fire drives, like now I know if I'm in that flow path, I need to get out of the flow path. And yeah. part of the way that I might do that is go into a door and shut it behind me, stuff yeah. like that. Many, many amazing firefighters have been killed because of conditions like that. Right. And you are lucky. You have been given an opportunity and that's huge to, to recognize that and to make something of that and to turn around and start studying the game um, a little bit more deeply. And I think I, I hope, I guess my hope for this conversation is that other firefighters will, will take your experience and grow from it, right? There's wisdom in that and in being able to listen to somebody else's lessons learned and turn around and go, man, I have got to be more knowledgeable about the things that can hurt and kill me on this job. Yeah. And how do I get that knowledge? I got to go you know, read the NIOSH reports, read UL reports, look at the research that's being done, and then figure out how to uh, embed that into the be operational behaviors that you have. Yeah. And to think and to take the ego and macho out and set it to the side yeah. and know when and where to apply it. Yeah. Right? There's a time and a place to be aggressive. And I would say that you need to be aggressive, but sometimes it's, it's, direct attack sometimes it's an indirect attack it's about being smart and applying your knowledge skills and abilities at the right time at the right place that's aggressive yes. you know if you're just gonna if you're just going willy-nilly about this and hey we're just gonna squirt water and put fire out hey man yeah. we're just gonna you know make grabs well that's a that's a crock of crap yeah right you have to do this job correctly and and put water in the right place at the right time to have the, the most appropriate effect on the fire so that you can we just had a, a, a small apartment fire not too long ago with the, the guys were trying to make entry it's a, it's like an 800 square foot apartment and they couldn't get in the front door because of the heat yeah <laughs> and you're like wow this is a one-line fire this is a small space they were flowing water like crazy couldn't get the fire out it took a second and then a third line to be flowed from the outside to get water in the right location yeah. to get the fire to go out yeah and people we, don't realize that i felt completely impotent my hose line was doing nothing in this small compartment yeah in this 
fairly small house, you know, yes, like yeah. I did nothing to affect that fire, even though I had that hose line open for as yeah. long. So people just think like, as long as I got a hose in my hand and fire will get put out and, yeah. you know, and, and I would say 95% of the time that's it true, does, yeah. right. But it's under, it's, it's understanding the nuances of the game and the nuances of the science so yeah. that you can be more, 100% more effective. Yeah. It's a it's a thoughtful job and a physical job. Yes. And that's part of the reason why I love the job, you know. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we think about size up and making good decisions, and nobody would argue with that statement. But I think the thinking aspect of it, I think I know more now about that side of things than I ever have. And I think I think the Phoenix Fire Department is doing a good job about implementing, like, the ability to be thoughtful and physical, like do both. Like, yes, you're aggressive, just like you said, but you do it in a way that makes sense with your size up. You always let your conditions drive your actions, but you need to be able to recognize conditions and see what's going on and understand the way that the fires behave and understand the building construction, understanding what your resources are and how you deploy them in order to help mitigate the problem. Like there's a lot that goes into it more than just, kicking doors in and stretching hose lines, even though that's the fun stuff, you know? It's, yeah. It's well, hey, that, and let's be clear, that stuff has to happen. Yeah. But it has to happen once you've used your brain. Yeah. And, you know, we can all sit back and bench race a fire and be like, oh, yeah, this is what should happen here, what should happen there. Yeah. Doing that in real time, um, in, in, in a compressed timeline under real hostile conditions takes practice. Uh-huh. And the only way you're going to get the sets and reps is through training and you're going to get some live reps, but but at the end of the day, you got to put the time in in the books, and you right. got to put the time in on the training ground so that you can make decisions wicked fast uh-huh. under duress. Yeah, you know, I'm still like I'm still trying to get better at that. We we all are. <laughs> but we it's all one are. of those things. Like if if you're not getting the fires, um, you got to put your time into the training, and that's yeah. one of the things I haven't done this perfectly. I need to get better at this too, but. Ever since that fire, I thought if I can do one thing, a shift to get better, watch a video, read an ash report, look at the line of duty stuff, watch a, watch some of fire ops videos, do something in order to try to get better every shift, then I feel like I'm discharging my responsibility. Like I'll train as much as I can, try to get as much experience. I'm still a young captain. I still feel like I learn from every call that I manage. <laughs> and sometimes I think like, I expected to be better at that than I was on this call, you know, based on all my experience that I've had with this call that we're talking about. And I'm still even growing in other areas. So it's one of those things where we just have to recognize that every situation is dynamic. You're not going to get as much experience as you hope. So you have to train hard. And one of the things that, I don't know, most of our guys are really good. One of the things that I have seen from time to time is just this poo-pooing of training as if it's just like something stupid like (laughs) it just you know and even when it's said around me i just sometimes wonder like man i was almost killed in a house fire in a in a pretty small you know house fire that any of us can go on today and it you know i didn't do anything stupid like i went through the front door started sizing things up thinking make i was making good decisions doing what i'd been trying to do conditions changed Things had to happen. I was almost killed. Like, why wouldn't you understand how serious this job is and the fact that people lose their lives doing it sometimes? And honestly, I mean, I like I said, like I'm a Christian. I try to trust God. I try to not overanalyze or worry about things. But I, so I still to this day stay awake sometimes in my rack at work 
thinking through calls and if what I'm going to do if I get them and how I'm going to get keep these guys safe, how I'm going to send them home safe. And it's not all the time, but like there are certain restless nights where I, where I sit up thinking about how important it is for me, for me to do a good job for the sake of them and their families. And I've been doing the job of a captain for over three years now. You know, like I know that's not a long time, but like you would think you'd start to get a little bit comfortable. Like I'm just still not comfortable. It's still too important for me to have my crew go home without getting hurt I still have a high view of being effective on calls for the sake of the customer. I still want to be aggressive and risk what we need to risk. That's why I got hired in the first place. But like, I have a very real and serious view of like how dangerous it is. And I just want to make sure that I'm not going to do anything that endangers those guys' lives. You know, The last thing I want to do is, is have somebody go through what I did. Absolutely. That's a great place to wrap, man. Yeah. Hey, Derek, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your story. I think there's tremendous value for anybody, anybody, frankly, firefighter or not to listen to that story and recognize how important it is to, um, to train, how important it is to have a support system, have a support network. There's a lot of lessons in there. And I'm sure that, you know, whoever's listening to this will find their own pieces of that, that they're going to pull out of it and take with them. And I, you know, I'm happy that you have learned something from this event and, and really uh, proud to know you. So thank you for taking the time and sitting down. Thanks for having Any me. Any final thoughts? Uh, no, I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. One thing that I just think is important for podcasts like this is just it gives me a platform to talk about it that I don't often have. So I'm grateful to you for letting me chat about it for a little bit. Cool. Uh, are you on social media at all? Yeah. If uh, if anybody wants to reach out to you, what's your what's your handle? Ooh, that's a good question. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think all lowercase on Instagram, it's at DerekBlock00. No. At dr block zero zero, I'd have to look. <laughs> I think I'll, that's right. I'll look at it up. Dr block zero zero is Instagram, and Facebook is something different. I never post anything. I don't really pay attention to much. <laughs> Sorry, bro. I'm on face. Just just search Derek Block on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm both those places. Right. I'll look it up and and leave a link in the show notes. All right, thanks, Derek. Appreciate your. Bro. Thank you, Rain. Once again, thank you, Derek, for taking the time to sit down and share with us your thoughts and your feelings, the lessons learned from these difficult events. Uh, you had to go through a tremendous amount of pain and adversity uh, to come away with those lessons, and hopefully each one of us can extrapolate out uh, some lessons from the events that took place, the things that you've learned that you've shared with us that we can apply in our own lives that will help us to avoid some of those difficulties and challenges. If you're listening to this podcast, go to whatever platform you're on, subscribe so that these episodes will drop in the middle of the night when you least expect it, and go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast. Your feedback is essential creating future episodes and future product. Listen, there are so many challenges that lay before us, and each one of them requires us to, as Derek said, assess the risk. We have to be thinking about the opportunity cost. What is at stake when we put ourselves in harm's way? We have to make careful, calculated, and thoughtful decisions about what we're doing. So do that. Be deliberate in your actions. Be deliberate in the things that you're trying to accomplish. And go on out there and get some.